it's kind of funny. I don't think anybody, I don't even think I put this in the book. We were, it was me and my parents, it was me and my dad, my mom, and my sister. We were sitting at the dinner table, and Jimmy Johnson was making his rounds. And if you don't know my father, he doesn't have a filter. He doesn't have a filter. He just says what's on his mind. So he was getting upset because Jimmy Johnson was taking so long to come to our table. And he was like, hey, let's get up, and we're going to Florida State. He said, the hell with Miami. And my mom said, calm down, sit down. You know, Jimmy's coming to the table. So Jimmy Johnson, about maybe a half an hour later, comes to the table. He says, hey, how you doing, Mr. Sersa? How you doing, Mr. Sersa? Right, we're happy Leon's here. Uh, you know, we want my, Leon to be a Miami Hurricane. He said, listen, when Leon comes to Miami, we're going to run them hard. We're going to work them hard. You know, we're going to practice them hard. I hope he's ready for what, he, what we have in store. My father looked at Jimmy Johnson and said, listen, Coach Johnson. He said, you can work Leon as hard as you want. You can run him as hard as you want. But if you ever call me and tell me that you effing with him, get to running. And I slid. I slid down the table because I said, oh, my God, I don't have lost my spouse for Miami. <laughs> What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, a lot of stuff to get to today. Great interview with former Miami star offensive lineman and 30 for 30 legend Leon Searcy coming up. Talked a little Urban Tebow mania, some Miami stuff, some Jimmy Johnson stories. Uh, I've also got my way too early playoff predictions that I think will surprise some people. And then in honor of my brother getting married this weekend, we're going to do best man slash maid of honor speeches in figuring it out. But I want to start with the big SEC news of the week. And yes, TJ Finley staying in the division and going from LSU to Auburn is big news, not just because he's a quarterback, but because there's a lot of layers to it. I tried to put myself in TJ Finley's shoes and I thought, okay, where would I go? As tempting as it would be for me to be like, ah, screw it, I'm going to go play with Joe Moorhead up at Oregon. Believe it or not, that's not what I would have done. They've got this kid, Anthony Brown, that they really like a lot, so I wouldn't have done that. I would have, however, tried to go to a Power 5 school. I know we're talking a lot about these non-Power 5 quarterbacks with Trey Lance, Zach Wilson, that's kind of all the rage, but look at the last three drafts. Only eight non-Power 5 quarterbacks came off the board in the last three drafts. It's a much tougher road to get noticed when you're not at the power five level. That's just the way things still are. Plus, that's what the market dictated. He had a power five market. If I'm Finley, I'm a guy who started five games at LSU as a true freshman. I did some things well, and even though I still need to improve against pressure, my downfield accuracy, those things, there's a lot of room to grow there. I, I still have a lot to offer with four years of eligibility left. As we know, Alabama, Auburn, Penn State, they all wanted him. And I think that when some people saw Bama as a finalist, they were a little bit surprised. I kind of had an eyebrow raised at that because obviously Bryce Young, he's going to get that chance. He's likely there two more years, but he's actually Finley's classmate. So technically, he still has four years of eligibility left. Even if you don't think that Paul Tyson, the great grandson of Bear Bryant, is built for that offense, they're really, really high on Jalen Milrow, the true freshman. They are so fired up about that. They said that during the spring game. So then you've also got five-star Ty, Ty Simpson coming in next year. Maybe Listen, there's a little bit of If you got a fear. chance to learn Scott Linehan's playbook, you got to do it. He's a spy. He's, he's downloading that offensive game plan for Alabama in case they see it again. We just had to get a Scott Linehan reference in there. Not a bitter LSU fan one bit at all, Will. Way to, way to keep those biases aside on that. Um, 
you know, I think for, for Bama's side, maybe there's a little bit of that fear with potentially if Paul Tyson were to transfer and then you're kind of looking at what's behind Bryce Young and you maybe question kind of some of the durability. So maybe there's a little bit of a move there from Bama's side to say, hey, let's go after somebody like Finley. Or Bama is like, wait, Auburn wants TJ Finley? We, we want to face Bo Nix for another couple years. So can't have that. Um, Penn State would have made a lot of sense too. They had two quarterbacks transfer out this offseason and go to Power 5 schools. Sean Clifford is entering year five at Penn State. He was pretty up and down last year. At one point, he had lost his job to Will Levis, who's now at Kentucky. So why not go there if you're TJ Finley? Assuming that this wasn't some sort of regional deal because Penn State was a finalist for him, Clifford technically still has two years of eligibility left. And yeah, they switched offensive coordinators, but James Franklin was the one who recruited Clifford. And James Franklin started Clifford in 20 games. Now compare that to the situation in Auburn. This new coaching staff has never made the decision to start Bo Nix in a football game. They didn't recruit him. They don't owe him anything. And while Bo Nix technically has three years of eligibility left, again, 2020 didn't count against him, does even the pro Bo Nix crowd think that he's going to be Auburn's QB1 in 2023? No, there's no way. Parson and Bobo hadn't technically handpicked a quarterback yet. Davis, the true freshman, was already signed. Grant Loy, the transfer from Bowling Green a year ago, he was already there. So you've got those guys saying, like, Harson and Bobo are saying to Finley, look, we want you. We think you have a real chance to be our guy. You'll have a chance to play right away because of this new SEC transfer rule that's going to pass so undergrads like Finley no longer have to wait a year. And if I'm Finley, I'm selling myself on one of two scenarios at Auburn. One, I'm immediately the backup at worst because Auburn doesn't want to turn to a 5'10 true freshman to start in the SEC West. If I start off as the backup, there's a real chance that I can be the guy by midseason because as I've said, that first half schedule is brutal. You got to go to Penn State, you got to go to LSU, and you host Georgia. Then even if you get through that in the first six games, there's a road game in Arkansas to face an experienced Barry Odom defense. That's all before Auburn's bye week. Knowing what we know about Bo Nix's home road splits, if I'm Finley, I like my chances by getting, of getting a shot by the midway point of the season, or at least maybe coming off of that bye week. All I can ask for if I'm Finley is a shot, which is what I didn't have at LSU. Scenario number two that I'm selling myself on, no, by, by saying not have a shot, I'm saying not have a shot now. He had his shot as a true freshman, but he saw the writing on the wall. He was QB3. He wasn't going to start ahead of Miles Brennan. He wasn't going to start ahead of Max Johnson. Scenario number two that I'd be selling myself on if I'm TJ Finley. Bo Nix's learning curve can't be that much different than mine. Sure, he got the spring, he got those reps, but it's still a new offense for him too. And there's a little bit of this break him down to build him back up. So I think part of this is Bo Nix having to figure things out and really kind of start at the foundation. So it's not like he's just building on top of his skill set. He's having to do some things for the first time. We've talked about the under center stuff. And there are things that Bo Nix is probably feeling like, wow, I haven't had to do stuff like this in a long time. And with some of the things that if I'm Finley, some of the things that I do well, I, I actually might be more of a natural fit in Mike Bobo's offense than Bo Nix. That's more throws in the pocket. What, what am I good at? I'm good at throwing in the pocket, working from the pocket. SEC StatCat, shout out to them on Twitter. They, they showed that. 
Great account. If you're not following SEC StatCat, I think there's an underscore in there, I think, between SEC and StatCat that you should definitely be following. A lot of great in-depth breakdowns, a lot of good stuff on Finley. They showed that Finley had the best intermediate adjusted completion percentage of all SEC returners and also the best dropback play action success rate. So give Finley a clean pocket and he picks defenses apart. Now, obviously at LSU with the offensive line issues that they had last year, you didn't see that a whole lot. And when things broke down, they were bad. They were ugly. He had some bad plays. And when you can't necessarily stretch the defense, you don't have that deep ball in your arsenal yet, yeah, it's going to be a little bit rough. There's also the fact that Mike Bobo's pitch to Finley probably sold him. Like, if I'm Finley, I'm thinking to myself, he's going to work with me every day to make sure I get this offense down. Zoom calls, whatever. So if I'm Finley it makes sense why I'd commit to Auburn. And credit Mike Boba, who lived up to his word, and they've apparently worked, he, he worked with Finley on those Zoom calls every single day leading up to when that announcement was made official. He had apparently told them behind closed doors what he was going to be doing. So what does that mean for Auburn? What does that mean for Knicks? First of all, I think two things can be true at the same time. I think it's fair to say that if Knicks had to totally just come into spring camp and looked like the guy and he's taking this new system and wow Auburn feels like they have a star I don't think that TJ Finley gets the full court press and remember that Auburn recruited Tyler Shuck the transfer from Oregon who somehow left Joe Moorhead's offense I'm just kidding again they like the they like they like this kid Brown a lot he's going to be good there but I said a couple months ago when I went in depth on Bo Nix and this this being his last stand that Nix was going to be the guy if no better option emerged for Auburn. The market for QBs, as I said, really hadn't been great when you look at the transfer portal. Finley offered something unique that'll make Auburn better, even if he's not the guy from the jump. There's another thing that I also think is true at the same time. Harson and Bobo are automatically, you know, like th there's this assumption that they're bailing on Nix. I've seen some people say that, and I don't necessarily think that's the case. In a perfect world, they fix Bo Nix. Yeah, that rhymes. That's fun to say. And it's probably a good thing to be able to sell to future recruits. He has more SEC starts than any returning quarterback. And if they figure it out with him, which is a massive if, of course, that's great. That's something that they can sell to future transfers. Because in a way, Nix is kind of like a transfer in that he has all this experience, but he's coming into a new system. Nick's becoming one of the better SEC quarterbacks is still probably the most ideal year one scenario for Brian Harson. Would I bet on that happening? Probably not, but they'd be foolish not to at least try that. And if you're able to find some success with Bo Nix, Finley's got four years of eligibility left. You develop him. He's already used his one-time transfer. He's not going anywhere. You're not bailing on him if Nix somehow succeeds. That's why this move made sense for all parties. Besides the fact that there's this system fit and the fact that I'd hate to be forced to stick with a struggling Bo Nix if I had no actual options behind him, this is a smart move. Auburn needed depth and someone to potentially save them from a disaster season because that schedule is brutal. The first half. The first half is an absolute gauntlet. But think about just getting through that first half and then knowing that on the back end of that schedule, you still got Ole Miss, you still got a trip to Texas A&M, and then, oh, by the way, you get to host the defending national champion Alabama Crimson Tide. There's a realistic chance that Auburn is only favored in like six games this year. And that can change, obviously. That's just based on what we've already seen from Bo Nix. If he struggles even more, that floor gets worse. 
So maybe Finley can save that. Or who knows, maybe Finley will be a really good quarterback. Most true freshmen aren't put in TJ Finley's spot. After such a weird offseason where he's forced to, to start half a season against SEC competition without any of those cupcake games as a warm-up. I think those games are really important. We can joke all we want about facing the UT Martins of the world, but for some of these guys, just being able to get some of those reps and to do so in front of a college crowd, I think it's important. After South Carolina, when there was actually a book against TJ Finley, he struggled. And he, he made throws and mistakes that a lot of true freshmen would make. Most quarterbacks aren't defined so soon into their careers. And I give Finley credit for recognizing that he wasn't going to beat out Miles Brendan or Max Johnson at LSU. And I give Finley credit for recognizing that even though he's not a revenge guy, there was a nice opportunity waiting for him on the planes. He did exactly what I would have done. Will, any closing thoughts on Finley? As an LSU fan, is there like a part of you that that takes a new interest level with Finley knowing like, hey, you know, there's a possibility that if he becomes the guy at Auburn, you're going to face him a couple times in the next couple of years here. Yeah, no. And I've always, you know, I've always rooted for him. And when we went with him, when LSU went with him after um, the Miles Brennan injury, um, it was very shocking to me. He really wasn't ready. And, and as we talked about affair, he was a little bit of a project coming in. And so he was a guy that I was like, wow, like it seems like we're really throwing him to the wolves here. Exactly like what you said. I'm not out on him by any means. Um, I, I think this is an exciting opportunity for him. And I think that, you know, for Bo Nix, if you still have your Bo Nix stock, if you're holding on to it, you know, if he loses this job to Finley, that's going to be a tough look. That's all I'm going to say. I think that, like you said, it puts a little bit of pressure on him, which could be good because under Gus, he was told over and over again, maybe not told, but shown through Gus's actions, he was never going to be benched. And so you're right, you know, it's a clean slate, it's a new offense. Um, and, and it's some accountability for Bo Nix, which might be a teaching tool. And I think exactly like you said, you know, what if Bo gets hurt? What if something goes wrong? Then you have some guy or you have a guy with SEC experience, which is really helpful. So I love the move for Auburn. I love the move for Finley. And yeah, I mean, hopefully it all works out for him. The intermediate passing numbers are what I think sold a lot of these places on Finley. And you can pull up some bad clips. There are some bad clips. And you could make the, the argument that Finley is not an upgrade from Knicks and that Auburn is going to be in the same position from a, a quarterback upside standpoint that they would have been in had they not had Finley. But I tend to look at the attractive things of why someone like him had such a desirable market with those four years, four years of eligibility for someone who is a project and someone who already has that SEC experience to know what he did wrong to know, hey, when we throw him out to the Wolves for the first time, we shouldn't be learning new information about him. Ellis, you already took care of that for us. So you get to work based on that. And that's what I would like if I were Harson and Bobo to look at with Finley. But, you know, he, he's a guy that is going to be really, um, I, I think it's going to be telling to see how quick of a trigger the coaching staff has to be able to make that move, if and when, if, assuming that we're talking about Bo Nix as QB1 from the jump, which I think Bo Nix is still going to win the starting job. Yeah. I don't think TJ Finley is all of a sudden going to be the guy. There's no question, though, that Nix has a shorter leash now with TJ Finley right behind him. Well, I'll say real quick, too. If they decide to, for any reason, go with a two QB system, buddy, that is going to no. be a disaster. No. That is, I'm just saying, listen, I've seen it too many times in the SEC, but I think uh, the thing that's interesting about them, there might not be 
two more unlike players in the SEC because Bo Nix is so good on the move and outside of schedule. And exactly what you said about, you know, Finley, all of his bad plays almost are when the pocket collapses and he has to make something up. When Finley was on schedule, he was a pretty good player. When he got outside of, rhythm, of a rhythm, it was terrible. With Bo Nix, he sees a schedule. That dude was like, nah, man, I'm just vibing. Let me do my own thing. And that's, <laughs> that's why he couldn't fit a, a full, you know, four quarters of football because he wanted to do everything off schedule. So you know how Dan Mullen would say Emory Jones is going to come in to spell Kyle Trask to kind of get the running game going? Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be funny if, it'd be funny if they had a two-quarterback system at Auburn where they're like, yeah, you know, we brought TJ Finley in just to get some of the pocket passing going. <laughs> we just, <laughs> we we just want the guy to run the plays we called. So we put right. in Finley. <laughs> we're like, we were getting a little bit too off schedule. So we just brought him in for a series to see kind of what our schedule would look like instead of having Bo Nix throw, you know, moving to his right and kind of throw it into the ground with half the field eliminated. Didn't want to have to do that. Today's podcast is brought to you by College Football Uncensored. If you haven't subscribed to Saturday Down South's newest podcast, College Football Uncensored, well, let's just say you're going to need to in order to get through these summer months. It's Marler. It's Tyler Huck. They're talking about everything college football and then some. They got a little college football drunk history. They rank SEC head coaches. And whenever big news hits, they react to that as well. For everyone who reached out last year and told us during the pandemic, hey, three pods a week, that's awesome. Do that forever. This is kind of like our 2021 version of that. We're doing different things. We're just on different channels. And for now, we're each doing one pod a week. So we're, gonna, we're not going to clog your feed or anything like that. But trust me when I say that you need to go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcasts. And I promise you, it'll help you get through these lean summer months. Will, I wanted to come out with some pre-summer playoff predictions. That's, that's always fun, right? We don't do that enough in this business is make playoff predictions, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of before the preseason magazine blitz, although that's, that's already hitting at this, at this point. I saw the, the Athlon preseason all-SEC teams. Got some thoughts on that. Maybe I'll save that for, for next week on some of the potential snubs and some of the ones where I'm like, what did they see in that guy last year? Uh, but today, we're going to stick to playoff predictions. I never do them this early, ever. I, I always wait till August, and I'll still lock them in for good in August. But there's a part of me that's like, hey, I feel strongly enough about these teams right now. And things can change, obviously, and guys get hurt and guys get in trouble, and you just never know. So we'll reevaluate that stuff in August. But I wanted to go on record with some of these now. And I sort of just want to be able to trust my brain as opposed to some of the group think and do playoff predictions after everybody's already coming out with them in August. So my playoff picks are actually a pivot from what I would have said like back in January. And if you would ask me for playoff picks in January, I probably would have only had one or two of the same teams that I settled on here in May. So let me go through team by team here. We'll start in the SEC. Georgia. I wouldn't have had Georgia in January. And I know some are going to say, well, you're falling into the trap. It's, it's typical Georgia offseason mojo, all those things. I'm not predicting Georgia to win a national championship and then the 1980 joke. Saying a team with four consecutive top seven finishes makes the playoff, that's a little bit different to me than sipping or chugging rather the Georgia Kool-Aid. My biggest initial holdup was pretty simple. It wasn't the Clemson game. And by the way, if I'm picking that today, give me Clemson in that. My holdup, what, what I was saying coming into the offseason was, look, 
They're ranked number 126 of 127 FBS teams in percentage of returning defensive production. That's the great stat that Bill Connolly always puts together each and every year. I banged the drum that UGA's defense versus those legit offenses the last couple of years, it's quietly been really, really bad. 2019 against LSU, 2020 against Bama, 2020 against Florida. So why the pivot? Isn't that just going to happen again? I'll say a couple things on that. I'm not sure that there's an SEC team in 2021 who's really going to push UGA like those teams did. And I know the secondary is so young. You're replacing Stokes, LeCount, Campbell, Stevenson, Daniel, Webb. The list goes on and on and on. That's the biggest question on this team, no doubt. But I think the secondary is going to get some additional help. And I'm not just talking about Tyke Smith, the West Virginia transfer, though that's huge. Pro Football Focus had him as the best safety against coverage in FBS last year. He's going to play in that star position. He's going to cover really well in the slot. As we've said before, that's where some of these SEC offenses are lining up their elite receivers and letting them go to work. So it's important to have a guy like Smith in the rotation. Two things that got overlooked last year. Let's start with Bama. Will, any guesses where Alabama a.k.a. the team who went undefeated last year, ranked against the pass in FBS. In FBS. So you just said there's 128 teams in FBS? Yeah, and it's, it was weird because some team like Austin P opted out. Uh, there, so there was a little bit of mix-up of, of who actually gets counted. There was a couple teams yeah. that only played like two games. But I think, I think like we ended up yeah. 127. Yeah, 127 okay. to 129, depending where you look. I'm going to go – I'm going to go about – I'm going to go – about, oh, they scored so many points. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go about 100. So this is Alabama's passing defense. You think they ranked 100th? Yeah. Okay, they ranked 70th. I didn't think that you'd go that far in that direction because Bama had this stretch of like four games without allowing a passing touchdown. And yeah, part of that was the Keishon Butte dropped on the goal line one. Technically, that counted in that streak. But they were number 70 against the pass. That was a team with a top 10 pick at corner in Patrick Sertan. That was Josh Job, who looks like a future first rounder. That was Malachi Moore, who was a stud as a true freshman. And in their three biggest regular season games, Ole Miss, A&M, and Florida in the SEC Championship, they allowed an average of 374 passing yards on 9.7 yards per attempt. I guess that's not the three biggest regular season games because Georgia, LSU, probably have something to say about it. But those three games were very, very big and they were very important. It didn't matter, though, because that offense obviously was cranked up to another level. And to be I clear, that's where I was going with that. I don't think I've been that wrong on a trivia question, but it really didn't matter. They stopped the teams right. they needed to stop, and then it was just kind of like, eh. And, I mean, the Florida game is such a great example of that because, to me, that game never felt close. Even though Florida scored all those points, and statistically it looked like they played well, whenever Bama needed a stop, they always got it. But the final scores of a lot of these games, like a lot of the SEC uh, schedule last year, especially the Ole Miss games, are just like, what are we looking at here? This is a disaster. So, yeah, I, it, that's definitely coming up this year in a regular year. Like, it's going to be better, I believe. Yeah, Bama could get a stop by virtue of f having one of the nastiest hits I've ever seen an offensive player deliver to jar a ball loose, and all of a sudden Bama takes over and a turnover doesn't happen. So, yeah, Bama could do things like that. Right. I don't think this Georgia offense is going to be on the level of 2020 Bama offense. I think it's unfair to say anybody's going to be quite on that level, but it'll be better than last year. That much I feel confident in saying, and it won't necessarily need to have a top 15 passing defense to win a national championship. Speaking of Georgia's passing defense ranks, remember when I said that Georgia had all those guys last year? Kirby Smart's defense against the pass ranked number 88. That's it. 
It was a far cry from 2017 where they ranked number eight against the pass. What did Georgia do extremely well that year? They rushed the passer. What should they do even better this year? They should rush the passer. I know, Aziz Ojolari, he's gone. He was so good at that. But Adam Anderson is going to be a monster in this defense. He actually had a better pass rush grade than Ojolari did. He wasn't a full-time player. That's the big question with him. But Pro Football Focus had him for a 24.5 pass rush win percentage rate in the last three years. That's number three among Power 5 players in that stretch. He's finally going to get the full reps. Anderson, combined with Nolan Smith and Trayvon Walker, former five stars who are entering their pre-draft years, those guys have so much potential. And Kobe Dean has a lot of hype. Georgia fans are so excited about this. Yes, he's replacing the underrated Monty Rice, but Dean rushes the passer better than Rice did as well. You've also got Jalen Carter, the defensive tackle. Shout out to Apopka, Florida, where I live. He's the five-star who really flashed. You got, have you ever watched Jalen Carter basketball highlights? Oh my gosh. Get on the internet, get on the Twitter machine and do that. Dude's 300 pounds and throwing down alley-oops. Like, dude is a freak. Um, love anyway, to see that. Yes, I, you of all people I know love to see that. Uh, he's, he's the five-star, flashed a lot in limited reps last year. And if Jordan Davis can stay in shape, a big if, a very big if, and at least become closer to a three-down player. No, he's never going to be a Christian Barmore in the way that he rushes the passer. But if he can take on multiple blockers, look out. So that's why I think the secondary is going to get some help. The playoff path is there even with a loss to Clemson because I think Georgia wins the SEC. And I'll come back to that, that thought later because there's obviously more to that of, oh, who are they going to be to be able to get there? There's even a scenario though in which Georgia beats Clemson, goes 8-0 against the SEC, and then loses the SEC championship to like Bama or something like that, and then still makes the playoff. So I'm penciling Georgia in. Clemson. Do I really need to spend a lot of time on this? I mean, Brent Venables returns all but one starter on that defense. Clemson's defense, I think, probably spent the entire summer being pissed off. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a repeat of 2018 with that group and how good they look. Also, have you seen the schedule after Georgia that Clemson is playing? Will, I'm going to read this to you. Clemson's schedule after that Georgia game. Versus South Carolina State, versus Georgia Tech, at NC State, versus Boston College, at Syracuse, at Pitt, versus Florida State, at Louisville, versus UConn, civil conflict, versus Wake Forest, at South Carolina. That's a big old woof from me. Florida State is the most recent New Year's Six Bowl invitee of that group, and that was five years ago. <laughs> Clemson doesn't have UNC, they don't have Miami, they don't have Notre Dame on that regular season schedule. Clemson, if you go back and look at their losses in ACC play in recent memory, Clemson lost at Notre Dame in double overtime last year without Trevor Lawrence. But the last time that they lost to like a real ACC team, 2017 against Syracuse when Kelly Bryant got hurt in that game. It'd be stunning if the Tigers do not sweep the ACC. If they beat Georgia, etch it in stone. Now is when we're going to get a little bit interesting. Oklahoma. Speaking of teams that I would not have picked to go to the playoff in January, I kind of, I, I was on the Iowa State thing. I love the percentage of returning production. I like Brees Hall a lot, Brock Purdy, despite the fact that he looked like he was playing with cement shoes in that game against Louisiana and Iowa State had no business whatsoever being in the playoff consideration that some people were trying to make him out to be. And that was an absolute joke. I was trying to turn the page, but they become a little bit too trendy for me. And I don't necessarily like that, despite the fact that Matt Campbell's very good at his job. 
I really like what Lincoln Riley did in the transfer portal. By the way, I love the ESPN story on tampering. Did you read that, Will? Um, <laughs> oh, it was good. It was really good because that's the new way of free agency in the transfer portal. And Riley is quoted in the story as saying, players have so many voices in their ears. I'm sure that when Lincoln Riley got Eric Gray, Wanya Morris, Key Lawrence, and Mike Woods, Oklahoma totally didn't have any assistance using third-party people or reaching out to high school coaches to be like, hey, you want to come to Norman? I'm sure they did it all by the book and Lincoln Riley's totally innocent there. But nonetheless, I think this is the best Oklahoma team that Riley has had for one big reason, and it isn't Spencer Rattler. If I could actually bet on him not being the number one pick in the 2022 NFL Draft, I would just because I actually question him being the steady guy that people sort of rally around. I, I'm Team Sam Howell all day. I'll continue to bang that drum. So why is this Oklahoma's best team yet? And a team that, dare I say, dare I say, could actually win a playoff game. I know, so many people have probably just turned off this podcast hearing those words come out of my mouth. The defense. It's finally good. And I'm not just saying that because of the Cotton Bowl. I almost wish that didn't happen. But those last seven games of 2020 with Alex Grinch as a defensive coordinator... I know, Will, you're an LSU guy. You wish that that game happened. I know, I know. But they allowed an average of 17 points in their last seven games. And they were really good on defense in a conference that, as we know, is not known for that whatsoever. Even after losing Ronnie Perkins, they're going to rush the passer extremely well and do a lot of the things that they did last year to be able to get to that level. Nick Benito is Pro Football Focus's top returning edge rusher in FBS. Jalen Redmond and Caleb Kelly were both out last year, and when they're healthy, they're excellent in the front seven. They're coming back this year. And then Lawrence could play right away in the secondary. He was a rotation guy in year one at Tennessee after being Tennessee's top-rated 2020 signee. So why could this year be different with Oklahoma? Could they finally win a playoff game? I told you that I went in-depth on this on SaturdayDownSouth.com. Shameless plug. Go read that if you can. I think this team can. I went back and I looked at the teams who won a playoff game. Every team who has ever won a playoff game had a defense that ranked in the top one-third in FBS. Ohio State last year is the lone exception, but they were literally an extra point away from being in the top one-third, so I'm still going to count them. To win a playoff game, we've seen now, seven years into the system, you need three things. You need a top one-third defense. You need a bona fide stud at quarterback, or if you have Jake Locker, you know, have Lane Kiffin in his ear, I guess. And you need a t- Did I say Jake Locker? I meant Jake Coker. Right. Jake Locker. Similar players. Wow, we went way back on that one. Did not mean that's a great Jake Locker shout out. Sarkeesian, um, though. Look, like it all comes back great, around. Great point. Love it. Love where your head's at, Will. And then the third thing you need you need a team with top nine talent in the 247 Sports Talent Composite Rankings. That 2015 Clemson team was the only one to win a playoff game with a team that ranked outside of the top 10. In 247 Sports Talent Composite. They've been tracking this, they've been tracking that since 2015. But they had a budding star defensive coordinator in Brent Venables. And every time they won a playoff game, it's Watson or Lawrence combined with Venables. Oklahoma will probably be in that six to nine range in terms of the talent composite rankings when the season starts. 
their previous rankings and why they've never had a chance in these playoff games. 2015, they ranked 16. 2016, they ranked 18th nationally. 2017, when they pushed Georgia to the brink and they have that great game in the Rose Bowl, they were only number 16 in talent composite. 2018, they climb up to number 11. 2019, with Jalen Hurts, that team was number eight. And last year, they were, actually, they were number nine. The first time in the top 10, when they actually finally had a chance was 2019, but that team had an awful defense. I was there for that Peach Bowl. Will, you were there for that Peach Bowl. Even if Ronnie Perkins wasn't suspended for that game, which yeah, probably made a difference, that was still a mediocre defense at full strength. This 2021 Oklahoma squad, it can follow the path of those Clemson teams. The last three to win playoff games that Clemson had were all in that six to nine range in terms of the talent. I think Rattler and Grinch can be like Clemson's Watson slash Lawrence and Venables combo. That's why this is the best chance for Oklahoma to win a playoff game, but it's still all about the matchup. And if you ask me today bet between like Oklahoma and Georgia, I'd still probably pick Georgia to win that game. The thing about Oklahoma, I, I feel like the conversation around them has been a little bit off for a while. You're absolutely right on the talent thing. Uh, I think that everyone's so enamored with their quarterbacks and with their offense, but at the end doesn't of the matter. day, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it's like, that's why I understand SEC fans frustration with them because they show up and they just don't have the dudes, but you look at what they're doing now and the recruiting classes are like getting up there. Like I started noticing that and it's not just receivers and quarterbacks because every other year they'll get a quarterback. They'll get a guy that's just, you know, the number one or number two quarterback, but they're starting to get some D tackles, some edge rushers, like some guys that you look at that, you know, could have gone anywhere. Um, and yeah, like you said, I, I think that, that that um what was it the cotton bowl against florida yeah it was a it was a coming out party for their defense and i have some ou friends that were saying all year no no no, you got to understand we're not talking about spencer rattler we're talking about this defense we can't yeah. stop talking about this defense it's totally different and so people get so fixated on the quarterback while, while just kind of covering up all the trash behind the tarp now if they can just play a little bit of complimentary football i mean we've seen the offense is good enough if they're not just having to put up 60. there's a good chance that rattler might be number four among those Oklahoma quarterbacks with, in terms of just college quarterbacks, we're not talking about NFL upside or anything like yeah. that, but if you were to rank Baker, Kyler, Hertz, and Rattler, I, I, I might probably, I mean, you know, barring what we see in 2021, I, I probably have Rattler fourth, but you need those elements. We, I, I say like, oh, the quarterback doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it's that you need those other things or else it, it doesn't matter if you have the number one overall pick, Heisman Trophy winner. You need those other ingredients to win a playoff game. It is so hard in this system to be able to do that, and you need those ingredients. That's what we've learned seven years into the system. Last playoff team that I have. You ready for this one? Cincinnati. Yes, I think it happens. Just as everyone is talking about expansion, I think Cincinnati gives the selection committee no choice. As we know, group of five teams, they have to do it the year before to have any chance, right? Cincinnati was a late Georgia rally from having an undefeated season, which kind of gets lost in the shuffle, and it would have been more impressive than 2017 UCF. Obviously, they didn't win that game against Georgia, but they were very, very close to it, and there were a lot of people that if you go back and look at what people are saying about Cincinnati in the fourth quarter, they're like, oh my gosh, what, a, what an effort this is from Cincinnati. This Cincinnati team is likely starting off in the top 10. Losing defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman, losing him to Notre Dame, that, that hurts. There's no doubt about it. Probably hurt LSU a lot, too, that he didn't want to come to the South, wanted to stay in the Midwest. But other than that, there is a ton 
to like. And it's not just that they have Desmond Ritter back. They've got 15 starters coming back from a team that was really, really good. Ritter might not even be one of the best two players on his own team. Ahmad Gardner, he is a game-changing cornerback that a lot of people are going to be talking about in NFL draft circles. He's going to be getting this preseason All-America love. The same goes for MyJ Sanders rushing off the edge. We just talked about Oklahoma and why he was able to finally turn the corner defensively because he was able to generate pressure on the quarterback. Cincinnati is still going to be able to do that. But what about the path? That's the big thing that we always talk about with these group of five teams. They don't have a path. They don't have a path. How can a group of five team make the field if they don't have a path? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked or that I asked. Besides starting off in the top 10, look at that schedule. They travel to Indiana in week three. I'm not, I'm not a biased person saying this. I think I was the lowest on Indiana of anybody that I looked at in the way too early rankings. But Indiana could start off as a top 15 team in the country. That is a weird thing for me to say about football. It is a very weird thing to say. But if they're not in the top 15, they're probably going to be pretty close to it. Then you have a bye week. And then Cincinnati travels to Notre Dame. This is a great year to catch the Irish. This is going to be, in my opinion, an Ian Book appreciation year. Because Jack Cohn, the Wisconsin transfer, he ain't Ian Book. And people are going to find that out. He's really not on that level. And Ian Book was a great college quarterback, regardless of what you think his upside was. He still did so many things very well for that team. If Cincinnati wins those two games, it's a big if, obviously. But you need to have the path if you're a group of five team. That's all you can ask for. If they win those two games, they're going to be a top four team by the first Sunday in October. They can follow the path that was there for 2016 Houston. People forget that Houston was number six in the AP poll in week two. Week two. That's because they beat Oklahoma in the opener. They beat them in a neutral site game. But then in classic Tom Herman fashion, they had embarrassing conference losses. Cincinnati is playing in what's now the most respected group of five conference in America. Yeah, uh, say what you want about that, but that still comes with something. It's different than trying to do it out of the Sun Belt. It just is. The only AAC team to beat Cincinnati in the last two years was Memphis. Last year, though, Cincinnati avenged that loss by beating Memphis like a drum, 49-10. And unlike two years ago, they would only have to play Memphis in a potential AAC title game. Cincinnati is not getting left out if it runs the table. They're playing true road games against top 25 teams who are power five teams, which is so important. And even more important than that, they're probably starting off in the top 10. I cannot emphasize that enough. It is so different than UCF in 2018 coming off of that unbeaten season where, yeah, everybody's excited coming off that year and, hey, we're, you know, we're claiming national championships, all that stuff. Cool. You start off number 21 in the country and then... You have the UNC game canceled, which meant your lone Power 5 game was at home against Pitt. UCF didn't have a path. That's why they ended up not making the playoff, and they played against LSU in the Fiesta Bowl. So give me Cincinnati to shock the world and probably lose a blowout in the semifinal. So So I'll say on that real quick, sorry. Uh, Cincinnati, very different from UCF. And people don't understand this, but... A lot of UCF fans are upset about this, but it just is what it is. Cincinnati is a historic American institution. You know, I mean, the Big O went there. They have a lot of history behind them, and they have recent success in college football. I mean, hate to say it now, but Butch Jones, right? He was pretty successful. Brian Kelly had that season where they played Tebow in the bowl game back in, like, 2010 um, with Marty Gilliard, and they, they've they been around for a minute. Mark D'Antonio, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like they have history. That, that's one thing that makes them a little bit different. And then on top of that, they have a figurehead. Now that's something that UC have missed out on with Scott Frost because mm. he could have been this guy. But they have Luke Fickle. And you look at their recruiting class, they had three four-stars uh, in one cycle. I believe it was 2019. And yeah, 2020. That's more than UCF has gotten, I believe, ever. Um, so if you look at kind of like what they are as an institution, you know, they're, they're linked to the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. They have fans. And I'm not saying anything negative about UCF, but UCF's rise has been so much more mercurial and straight up, whereas Cincinnati's yeah. been hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. And there are people who grew up that are on the playoff committee that remember watching Cincinnati coming up where they don't, they see um, UCF as more of a, uh, what's it called, nouveau riche type of thing. And so, yeah, I think that while they are standing on the backs of what UCF has done, it's always been a little bit more possible for them because they have this cachet from previous administrations. And retaining the pieces that they did as well is something that I think is going to go a long way. And I think that if you are trying to figure out what the path can potentially look like, this is how you draw it up. This is exactly how you draw it up. And I think Cincinnati is going to really surprise some people. Go ask Georgia fans about Cincinnati. That's a, that's a really good football team. And they, and it wasn't like Cincinnati saw a Georgia team that like didn't care or whatever. Don't tell me that like Georgia didn't care. I, I, I didn't see Georgia fans saying this, but if people are going to respond to this by saying, oh, you know, it was just kind of a throwaway game, it didn't mean anything. JT Daniels was out there, and he, he struggled against that defense for the majority of that game. You had, you had Cincinnati try to deal with, you know, Jordan Davis. You had him trying to deal with Aziz Ojolari. Like a, 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 a Georgia team that was ready to go. And I think that you look at that game and what they were able to do coming off of what had been an unblemished season, and I, I tend to think that they're going to get the benefit of the doubt in the preseason polls, and there's going to be a real conversation to be had. If they win that game against Indiana, and all of a sudden you're going into Notre Dame with that on the table, look out. It's going to be a big story in college football. So, to recap, Georgia, Clemson, Oklahoma, Cincinnati. We won't do winners yet. We won't project the rest of the field just yet, but some way too early uh, playoff predictions for the people. Let's go to my interview with Leon Searcy. A little peel behind the onion here. So something I do with a, with a first time guest, I'll often double and triple check to make sure I have the correct pronunciation of their name. And the case of guys like Leon, I had seen his name a bunch of times, but the guy played offensive line, so it's not like you hear his name a ton in the same sort of way in like a quarterback or former running back, whatever. I had always told myself, seeing his name, that it was pronounced Cersei. So just to be sure, I looked up some videos about him. And I found one from the Jaguars' official YouTube account from two years ago, where they did a countdown of their top 25 players, and Leon was number 14. So in that video, it was pronounced Cersei. I told myself, well, surely the franchise who we spent five years with and is considered like one of their best players in team history, surely they wouldn't butcher the pronunciation of his name along with other media members who covered him. So as you'll hear in the intro, I actually pronounce it Cersei. But then you'll hear Leon in the interview call himself Cersei. So let that be a lesson, kids. One, always ask the person you're interviewing how to say their name before the interview. And two, never trust the Jaguars to do anything right. So. Yes. Also, err on the side of not calling someone a Game of Thrones character. Yes, yes, don't do that. <laughs> I'm not a Thrones guy, so maybe that did me in. I should have probably done a little bit more research on that. So, here's my interview with Leon Searcy. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former Pro Bowl offensive tackle and current 1010XL radio host in Jacksonville. It is Leon Searcy. Leon, I was talking to our mutual friend and your co-host, Matt Hayes, about this. 
in terms of being in the talk radio business in Jacksonville, man, it feels like you're in the golden era right now. You get an entire summer to rotate between Urban, Lawrence, and Tebow. How's that been for you so far? Um, you know, I think, to be to be honest with you, I'm a little old school. I think it's unwarranted attention, to be quite honest with you, for a team that went 1-15. I mean, uh, the Jaguars, in my assessment, need to just go to – if I was a – if I was a teacher, I would tell them to go into timeout because until they start winning some football games, they shouldn't be getting all this notoriety. But, you know, I understand the, the energy, the new energy with hiring Urban Meyer. understand that, you know, having the first pick overall and bringing in Trevor Lawrence and then you add Tim Tebow into the equation, um, I guess that's, just, that's going to get national attention that we otherwise wouldn't get. So I guess it's good for the franchise. But me being a little old school, you know, I like to see the team start getting some W's and not not as much attention as we've been getting thus far. Well, on top of that, I mean, you're part of someone who played for the best teams in franchise history in the late 90s, and there's got to be a little bit of that, hey, these guys are already getting more attention than we got. Is, is that frustrating in itself? Uh, it doesn't frustrate me, but, I mean, the attention that we received when I playing was actually legitimized because this franchise, when I was there from 96 to 2000, I mean, they made the playoffs you know, four years in a row, and we were expansion team in 95. So I didn't, I sure the NFL didn't anticipate the Jaguars, you know, taking the, uh, taking the NFL by storm those first couple of years I was there. But you got to remember the first years, I, the first four years I was there in, in Jacksonville, I mean, we were, we were headline news because we was an upstart franchise. We were winning nine games, 10 games, 11 games, 12 games, 14 games a season and we were making a nice little playoff run where we played in two AFC championship games. So I, and, and you know, this franchise after I left, you know, the last 20 years has been dismal. I mean, this, you know, after 2000, this franchise only made three playoff appearances in 20 years. So I can understand the excitement from the fan base because they, they've been yearning for it for so long, but uh, it still boils down to winning football games. And, uh, that's why, that's why I'll be more excited about this franchise once we get back to our winning ways. Speaking of those Jags teams in the late 90s, how is your guy Fred Taylor not in the Hall of Fame yet? I have no idea. Um, you know, that's, you know how's, how's Tony Baselli not in the, in the Hall of Fame by now? You know, both of those guys. And a lot of people want to say because it's a small market and Jacksonville doesn't get the attention that those guys that play somewhere in New York or L.A., they'll probably be in the Hall of Fame right now. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know why. I mean, Fred Taylor is probably one of the most dynamic players that I've ever blocked for, and I blocked for some pretty good running backs. You know, I blocked for Barry Foster, Bam Morris, Natron Means, but Fred Taylor was just special. I mean, he was a home run hitter. I mean, you give him, a, you give him, you, you give him a glance of daylight. This guy could take it to the house at any particular time. I remember one time. I remember nineteen ninety eight when he came in his rookie year. We had a scrimmage inside the stadium against our defense. And we ran like an outside zone. We actually ran 36 zone. And Fred was going to the right, but the play cut back all the way to the left. And he outran our linebackers and our secondary. And I remember looking at Baselli and Baselli looking at me like, wow, we got us something. I mean, the kid was special from the from day one once he got to, it, you know, got to be a Jacksonville Jaguar. So um, the numbers don't lie. I mean, Fred, I mean, a lot of the guys that have been picked before him, uh, in the Hall of Fame, um, I'll put st- I'll put I'll put highlight film against any of those guys, and you can tell me why Fred Taylor is not in the Hall of Fame. 
that was a little trick that I just did. I just wanted to get a Miami guy to say something nice about a Florida Gator. It really happens. It really happens now. You might need you might need to keep that report. <laughs> keep that in your uh, uh, safety deposit box because I don't say it too often. We'll clip that. Uh, my generation didn't see you play in college at Miami in the late 80s and early 90s, but it, it's weird because I almost feel like I did because you've appeared in several 30 for 30s. I rewatched the U part one last weekend, and you know I kind of had this realization where you know realizing that you basically got to have your college career bookended by national titles. Jimmy Johnson left after your second year there. But he and his staff were the ones who recruited you. I got to imagine there's a good Jimmy Johnson recruitment story. Oh, well, you know, Jimmy Johnson, I didn't really see, I didn't see Jimmy Johnson until um, my visit at University of Miami. The guy who recruited me, his name is Don Solinger. The great Don Solinger was my recruit. But I didn't see Jimmy Johnson until my recruiting visit. And we were, uh, we were staying at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And, um, uh, it's kind of funny. I don't think anybody, I don't even think I put this in the book. We were, it was me and my parents, it was me and my dad, my mom, and my sister. We were sitting at the dinner table, and Jimmy Johnson was making his rounds. And if you don't know my father, he doesn't have a filter. He doesn't have a filter. He just says what's on his mind. So he was getting upset because Jimmy Johnson was taking so long to come to our table. And he was like, hey, let's get up, and we're going to Florida State. He said, the hell with Miami. And my mom said, calm down, sit down. You know, Jimmy's coming to the table. So Jimmy Johnson, about maybe a half an hour late, comes to the table. He says, hey, how you doing, Mr. Sersa? How you doing, Mr. Sersa? Right, we're happy Leon's here. Uh, you know, we want my, Leon to be a Miami Hurricane. He said, listen, when Leon comes to Miami, we're going to run him hard. We're going to work him hard. You know, we're going to practice him hard. I hope he's ready for what, he, what, what we have in store. My father looked at Jimmy Johnson. He said, listen, Coach Johnson. He said, you can work Leon as hard as you want. You can run him as hard as you want. But if he ever called me and tell me that you effing with him, get to running. And I slid. I slid down the table because I said, oh, my God, I done lost my style. <laughs> but from that day forward, my dad was so my – dad, my dad was just being – you know, he was being a father. He wanted to make sure that if he left his son with you, you know, with, at Miami, that he was going to be taken care of. And I remember my first day of orientation at the University of Miami. You know, we're all in the meeting room. It's all the freshmen in the meeting room. We're laughing and joking around. And all of a sudden, Jimmy Johnson comes in the door. Everybody gets quiet. And Jimmy Johnson kept it short and something. He says, listen, he said, hey, he said, welcome to the University of Miami. If he's not here to win championships, take your ass home. And he walked out the door. And I said, oh, gosh. wow. I said, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. I said, he was straight up. He was like, listen, you come here to win championships in Miami. But see, he was setting the mindset. That was the mindset that he was, he was letting his recruits know that, you know, you come here to the University of Miami to win championships. Now, they had won the championship since 83 because in that year before that, 86, they lost to Penn State in the Fiesta Bowl. So, I mean, he was 0 for 1 when it came to championships. But that freshman year was special because I was on the scout team and I earned my scholarship because, hell, every day of practice I had to go up against the number one defense in the country. I live uh, in Orlando now, about eight miles from where you went to high school at Evans. So I know that Miami's big deal then, and that was something that that started, you know, that started in the '80s there, where they wanted to rope off I-4 from Daytona down to Tampa. They basically wanted to make sure all those kids are going to Miami. You're pretty much right on I-4 there. So I'm going to go out on a limb and based on the story that you just brought up here, Bobby Bowden probably recruited the crap out of you to come to Florida State too. <laughs> 
He did. He did. He uh, he did. Uh, I had a lot of schools. I only played one year of high school football. My senior year was my first year playing uh, organized football. And um, uh, because I had the grades, you know, I, I was recruited by, you know, a lot of schools out, out of the state. You know, I was recruited by uh, LSU. I was recruited by uh, Clemson, LSU. I mean, LSU, Clemson. Uh, I remember getting a letter from Michigan State. But I had already made up my mind that I wasn't going to leave the state of Florida. So it, it came down to Florida State, Florida, and Miami. And, uh, you know, I, I just knew that I wasn't leaving Florida. And I actually took an unofficial visit to the University of Florida. Tell and, Florida fans about that because well, if, they, if, they, if there's well, one thing they want to hear, it's that, you know, an, all, an all-time great didn't end up going to their school. Well, I'm going to tell you why I didn't like the University of Florida. Because here's the thing. I took an unofficial visit with – Two teammates of mine, one one named uh, Prentice Wright, who ended up going to the University of Pittsburgh, and then another one was Tony McCourt, who actually played for the Florida Gators. And he loved Florida so much it was sickening to me. I mean, he was kissing the ground. We're on the sidelines. He hyping up here. I was like, this is sickening to me, to be quite honest with you. He loved it, but he, he, he was born to be a Gator. He was born to be a Gator. And I said to myself, I mean, Tony was just ridiculous with it. He, he actually, his enthusiasm towards the university actually sickened me. And I, I, I know this for the fans out there listening, but it's the truth. The truth of the matter is that it sickened me to the point that I can't come here. I mean, he's loving this place too much. And he was like, hey, man, we're going to be, you come to Florida, Leon, man, we're going to be roommates. We're going to do this, that, man. We're gonna, I was like, man, I ain't coming to Florida. I said, I'm coming. I'm going to Miami, Florida State. Be one of those two. All right, so another team that probably sickens you, Notre Dame. Uh, Two-part oh. question for this. When you guys found out about the Catholics versus Convicts title, just in general, before even you know the T-shirts come out, whatever, b- before that 1988 game at Notre Dame, what was your reaction? And then also, was the fumble at the end of regulation the worst call in the history of college football, maybe with the exception of the Fiesta Bowl with the pass interference with Ohio State? Well, let me just say this before I go comment on that. I have a hierarchy of hate, okay, when it comes to college football. Notre Dame sits at the top of the hierarchy of hate. They, 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 Florida is Florida's at four, but Notre Dame's at number one. But you know what? We didn't really realize the, uh, the magnitude of the Catholic versus convicts thing until maybe after the game. We realized that. I don't think we paid a lot of attention towards it until after the game was over. And, um, it was, you know, it was, it, was it, was it unfair? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we, you know, we, we took slight of it because, you know, we, we had some, you know, we had some guys, you know, that come, came from the inner cities in Miami. And uh, I think because master majority of our team was, uh, you know, African-American players who, who were kind of cocky and, 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 you know, showboated and stuff. And I think that, that, that assessed to us being criminals or being convicts, which was kind of unfair because a lot of people don't speak on the fact that uh, while I was at Miami, we graduated 88% of our athletes. No, 91% of our athletes actually graduated from the University of Miami in my five-year tenure I was there. I mean, but, you know, um, you know, we, we, we could have stuck it to Notre Dame with those T-shirts if we had came away with the victory, but we didn't. And the Cleveland Gary, I, well, listen, to this day, you can't get found a University of Miami fan that doesn't call that the phantom fumble. You know, it, it, it wasn't a fumble. Uh, he clearly reached over the goal line and scored a touchdown. At worst, we had a first down. At worst, we first had a down, first yeah. down. 
yeah, of course we had a first down, but it, it didn't happen. But, you know, after the game, I remember being in the, in the uh, meeting room with Jimmy Johnson after we lost the game. And Jimmy Johnson put in the tape, showed the tape. He showed he showed the Cleveland Gary uh, play. And Jimmy Johnson said, I told you. He said, if you make it close in South Bend, the reps are going to reward Notre Dame to win. He said, because we had no, we, there was no reason why we should have kept that game close. But Notre Dame, you know, they played hard. We played hard. It just unfortunately, uh, we failed at a two-point conversion. Uh which which cost us the game. Have you come across one of those shirts since then? Or, or like, let's just say walking down the street, downtown Jacksonville, and some random guy is wearing a Catholics vs. Convicts shirt, which I don't know how they would even acquire that at this point. Are you ducking that person because you don't want to talk about that game? Or are you doing a little bit of this like self-restraining because chances are that guy isn't necessarily wearing that shirt to show the Miami pride. He's kind of public well, enemy number one if he's a Notre Dame fan. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me as much. Now, if I saw that that guy wearing a shirt, maybe at a bar, I'd spill a drink on him. That's that's about it. <laughs> as we go. I you know, it doesn't bother me as much. I mean, it goes down in the annals as one of the greatest college football games ever played. I mean, there's a reason why ESPN plays it. There's a reason why there's a, there was a 30 for 34, because the, uh, uh, the, the, the venom between the two schools was, was must-see TV. I mean, uh, Miami and, and Notre Dame were polar opposites of what they perceived Notre Dame to be and what they perceived us to be. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all fun now as you get older when you realize that you were in one of the games of the centuries. I think we need some of that back in college football. Some of these home and homes that I'm hoping that we're gonna we're gonna start to see that maybe the latter part of the decade in the 2020s. There's a lot of teams that are expecting expansion. I'm hoping to be able to get some of that because when you go back and watch some of that stuff, the hatred and the magnitude is just unparalleled, and that's what makes college football so great, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Back those well, Miami. They, Sorry. Well, go I'm, ahead. Well, you know what? There's no villain. I mean, there's no villains in college football. There's no team that you say, you know, you know, they they showboat, they're cocky, and they win. I mean, I don't think there's any any team like that over the maybe the last 25, 30 some odd years. And we and we we embrace that. We embrace being the bad boys of college football. You know, uh, so I mean, I don't think they have that kind of. Uh, they don't have that kind of a, a team in college football. I, if I can remember maybe over the last 30 or some odd years. I'll let you you choose this one. Your best Miami story from either Ed Ogeron or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, my best, Ed, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There's no real story with Dwayne, man, because Dwayne was, I mean, you know, he, he was a viable player on that team in the rotation with our defensive line. I mean, but he lost his job to Warren Sapp, you know, over the spring. Yeah. Uh, as far as Ed Ogeron, if you, if you just, I just think about the, the coaching staff. Well, some of his one-liners were, were, were pretty, pretty damn awesome. To be quite honest with you, we when, in 1989, uh, uh, I think Ed Ogeron was um, he was assistant defensive line coach, and we had uh, our, our, our we had Cortez Kennedy and we had Russell Maryland. And I remember Ed Ogeron saying one day in practice, he "said Cortez Kennedy, you come off the ball like a bowling ball and butcher knives." I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but it sounds good. Bowling ball and butcher knives. 
I think you need to file that one away and just find it random oh, conversations yeah. to use with people just to see how they react to it. Yep. That was Eddie O. <laughs> I uh, I saw the story about your draft night where Jimmy calls you up and says, how do you feel about being a cowboy? And uh-huh. they had the Cowboys jersey, it's the contract, it's all ready to go. They bring it to your place. Dallas thought it was trading up from that number 17 pick to be able to get you in the 1992 draft. And instead, the Steelers hold on to that 11 pick. And then before you know it, Bill Cowher calls you up. And he's like, hey, how do you feel about being a Steeler? How bittersweet was that for you because of your relationship with Jimmy? Um, you know, uh, if, I, if I look back at it now, I mean, uh, I mean, and, and some, of, some of my friends who are Cowboys fans, they tease me about it because they tell me if I had been a Cowboy, I have six rings right now. I have, I have three national championships and three Super Bowl rings. But um, I would have loved to play for Jimmy, and Jimmy uh, recruited me. Uh, he he knew he knew what kind of physical and mental player that I was uh, in on the practice field. Now you got to remember now, Jimmy trying to draft me in '92 had never seen me play a game while he was there because um, I, I was a redshirt freshman when he left, and I was a second string backup. But obviously, he had watched watched me throughout my career and wanted me on his team. Jimmy had he, he had a he had a preference for Miami guys. I mean, he he knew there were certain guys at the University of Miami that he wanted on his team. And you know, I you know, I was honored that he he wanted to draft me in nineteen ninety two, but you know, the Stifler, the Steelers weren't moving on that eleventh pick. So uh I, I enjoyed my time uh, uh being a Pittsburgh Steeler. Go figure that as fate would have it. You end up being on that Jaguars team that had the nineteen ninety nine divisional round game that ended up being Jimmy's last and also Dan Marino's, the sixty two to seven game. Do you remember what you said to Jimmy after that? Uh, believe it or not, Jimmy Jimmy ran off the field by when I, by, I didn't get to see Jimmy. Well, Jimmy after that game when we beat him six two seven, Jimmy wasn't trying to shake no hands or was see nobody. Yeah. Jimmy was running off the field. I remember walking towards him and he was running off to the right and I said, Coach, 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 and kept running. So I, I, I never got a chance to see Coach, you know, after that game. And I don't blame him. I wasn't wanting to talk to nobody either after we after we dismantled them the way we did in that game at um in uh, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, that's fair. That's perfectly fair. I want to get you out of here on some rapid fire questions, but before I do that, I, I wanted to make sure that uh, we got to talk a little bit about about uh, what else you have going on. I know you've got cigars, you've got a book out there. Uh, tell the people where they'd be able to find those things. Well, I, I have a cigar line. Uh, my business partner now, Howard Gums. Uh, my, my cigars are called Leon Social All Pro Series Cigars. Uh, you can actually go to uh, howardgcigars.com, and you can uh, purchase uh, my cigars uh, along with uh, the Black Moses, the Magic Stick, and Ike Taylor. Ike Taylor, the two, two-time Super Bowl champion, Stiller, uh, has a cigar that we, we manufacture as well called One of a Kind. Uh, so you can go to howardgcigars.com, and you can purchase them uh, one at a time, three at a time, five at a time, or you can, you can actually buy the boxes as well. So I've been in the I've been in the cigar business now for about two years, and uh, they're just doing real well. Uh, as far as my book, my book is an autobiography. It's called Fourth Down the Dam: A Lyman Story. Uh, it's uh, the autobiography of me. It talks about you know my childhood life, time in high school, uh, being recruited, uh, my days at University of Miami, uh, on the field, off the field, in the locker room, the different games. 
Uh, then talks about me being drafted, my you know my time in the Steelers, the Jaguars, and it, t- it talks about also it, it's you know it's um it's a telltale story of everything that I went through, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the the good and the bad. So uh, you know I was pretty candid, and uh, you know uh, some of my achievements, but also some of the mistakes that I made, uh, not only personally but well, financially and business wise. So, um, but. Uh, there's there's a there, at the end I, I don't want to give it away but it also talks about my rise again uh, so I think it's not only a, a inspirational story but it's also a story about you know uh, getting back on your feet uh, which I'm which I'm doing right now. Awesome stuff, awesome stuff. Let's do a, let's do a little rapid fire to close out. Five questions. First thing that comes to mind can be a one one word answer or if you got a ten minute answer what, what, whatever whatever comes to mind does that work for you? Sounds good. Awesome. What's more likely, Urban wins one Super Bowl in Jacksonville or Tebow catches one pass in an NFL game? Wow. Um, I'm going to say Urban wins the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that hurt. It's going to be I a tough look. the fans right there. That was a shot in the heart. I know it was. <laughs> <laughs> So many Florida fans were like, man, he said that great thing about Fred Taylor, and now he's back in oh. our good graces. The, the last two comments, that's that's not going to do you any favors. That's all right, though. That's all right. Um, let's go toughest guy you ever had to block. Uh, toughest guy I ever had to block, uh, Reggie White. Easy. Oh, Reggie gosh, White. Yeah, the minister defense. Yeah, he was the toughest guy I ever, ever uh, had to block. Didn't give up a sack. Didn't get humped. But I got, I got, I got close. I got, I got close. It was the last game of the season, I believe it was 1995. The last game of the season, we had already locked up our playoff spot, and um, uh, I went, we, we, we lost to a Yancey Thigpen dropped a touchdown pass in the back of the end zone. We lost the game 29-24. Uh, but the, one of the biggest moments was after the game when we lost. You know, I was feeling down and depressed about losing the game or whatever. And then I. I feel this uh, hand on my shoulder, and I turned around to Reggie White, and he says, uh, he said, you had a good game, kid. And I said, uh, thank you, Mr. White. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, that, uh, that, that 2019 LSU squad, would they have beaten your 1991 Miami team? Um, yes, they would have. They would have beaten us. Uh, and I, only, I say that because um, Joe Burrow was pretty special. I mean, Joe Burrow was yeah. pretty special. I mean, uh, he had a season like none other. And I, I don't know if we would have been uh, defensively sound. On, I, I don't think Gino – I think Gino Toretta and Joe Burrow go head-to-head. And Gino's my guy. I think Joe, Joe Burrow gets the best of them. Uh, I, I really do. I think we're going to score. It's going to be a high-scoring game, but I, I think Joe Joe Burrow, that season that he had was pretty special. I, I think they'll probably be that 91 team. That'd be a great match. You guys let up 20 points like once that year, right? Yes. Goodness gracious. Different times, different times. Um, all right, say something else that's nice about the Florida Gators. Um... um Fred went there. Did you want Kyle Trask to come to, to Jacksonville? Was that was that a thing, or was it pretty much Trevor Lawrence from the jump? No, no, we were no, we were, we all we were all locked in on Trevor, all on all in on Trevor. 
All right, we got nothing then. We got nothing. That's fine. We can move on. Um, that's perfectly fine. As a, as a Miami, I'll close you out with this one. As a Miami guy, that's season opener, defending champs, it's Bama. We don't know necessarily about De'Ara King just yet. The, the question is simple. Do you want Bama? Um, do I want Bama? Yeah. Uh, well, hell, I'm not playing. I mean, I want to know against Alabama. <laughs> uh, so, uh, listen, I, I, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be paying more attention to even the score of the game, all right? Um, the, the knock on Miami over the last couple of years is that uh, up front, uh, that offensive line, defensive line has ne- never really impressed upon me as being a physical dominant unit. And I'm going to be – because Nick Saban, uh, I believe, even though he has the weapons, he has the running he has the running game, I mean, he has the running backs, the receivers, the quarterback and everything. But Nick Saban, I believe, in my assessment of watching the Alabama games, they physically pound on you on both sides of the ball. And I'm going to see – I'm going to be watching very closely to see if our offensive line can stand up to their D-line and if our D line can stay up, stand up to their offensive line, because that's going to be that's going to be in a nutshell, the game itself, in my opinion. I mean, everybody wants to talk about, you know, the wide receivers and the quarterback and all that kind of stuff. But if if, the, if Alabama physically imposes its will on our, our, our defensive line and our offensive our offensive units, uh, we don't stand a chance. Leon, this has been great, man. Really appreciate the time. I'll uh, I'll tell Matt Hayes this as well. But whenever you all need that like ten minute break from Tebow mania, you want to talk a little bit of college ball. I am always willing to help you guys out. I really appreciate that, Carla. Thanks again. This weekend, my one and only brother is getting married. I'll be in Lexington Thursday through Monday. Cannot wait. As I've said, first time seeing most of my family in a year and a half. My mom is one of 12. I think I've said that before. My mom is a triplet and she's one of 12. And I think 10 of the 12 siblings are gonna be there, which is just remarkable. Um, The only thing that I'm nervous about is giving the best man speech. Never done it before. Public speaking is different than doing a podcast. Speaking about college football with like you, Will, or on radio or on TV, it's just, it's different than talking about my brother and his wife in front of 150 people where I'm the only one standing. And it's even different than some of the live shows that we've done. To me, those are always easy. I prepare some talking points for that, but that environment is pretty natural for me. And there's nothing I do that really simulates this exact thing, the act of giving a best man speech. And how do I know this? My wife, Lauren, is an excellent public speaker. Let me back up for a second. For those who don't know this, and I've shared this on the pod before, but if you're a new listener or something like that, Lauren was the student speaker at my college graduation at Indiana. And she freaking nailed it. Like 10,000 people that she's speaking to in assembly hall, just ice water in her veins as a 22 year old. So fast forward to this past year. Lauren was the maid of honor at her sister's wedding, or rather she's the matron of honor because yeah, she's married to me for some reason. Lauren had the speech all typed out and she had practiced in front of me you know, a bunch of times. So I'm like, all right, this is college graduation all over again, no big deal. And it started out like that. Because of COVID, it was a pretty intimate setting. 20 people, I think, were at this wedding. But then Lauren, mid-speech, starts crying like in a way that I've never seen before. She's usually so unbelievably composed in these settings. And it it took her probably like a full minute to get right. 
And it wasn't that, like she failed even though she thought she did. I thought it was really touching. And it, everybody who was there who was watching was like, this is, this is a cool moment to see her get choked up like this. But she's like, I realized I didn't account for the emotion that comes into this. And you truly can't simulate that. There's really nothing quite in that same vein. So I feel like I have a good game plan here. But in the words of Mike Tyson, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Will, have you have had, have had like any sort of experiences, not just with um, best man speeches and whatnot, because like, like we said, like you're, you're just kind of getting to that point, but where you've been to weddings and you've seen it play out really well or maybe not see it play out so well? Yeah, I think that uh, everybody says like go from the heart. And, and I think that that's, that's actually a great example that you were talking about with Lauren, where it's like, if you're a, ver a very big talking points person and you're like, I got to say this, this, and this, you know, that versus like, you know, letting yourself feel it a little bit. Like the people that are super prepared are always like, oh, like that was so bad whenever they go back. But the people that are in attendance for those moments are always like, we love that like heartfelt type of stuff. So yeah, I think, mm. I think that like those things are very interesting. Cause like you said, there's only an amount that you can prepare until it happens. Like the wedding crashers thing, Rachel McAdams. She, she comes out of gate and she's, she tells Owen Wilson, you know, she's ready to go. She's going to try and bust some chops immediately. She's going to make fun of her sister. And Owen Wilson's like, got to speak from the heart. It always comes off as awkward if you try and be funny. So she goes up there, she bombs, everybody knows. And then she pivots last minute and she goes with the heartfelt angle and it, it kills and it's awesome. I can't imagine personally pivoting so severely mid-speech. Like I, I'm not that person to be able to do that. I also cannot imagine being in that spot where I didn't practice that speech in front of an audience beforehand to, to come somewhat close to simulating it, but not really. As you know, I over-prepare for everything. I usually have I usually have 13 pages of notes per podcast that we record. Do I always use them? Ah, you know, I use a good amount of them, but I, I'd rather have that than deal with the alternative of getting stuck and not having any idea what in the world is going on. We took to the Facebook group and we got some really, really good responses. Y'all absolutely brought it. Um, first one, Justin Lonizak, he says, first and only one I bombed, started um and freezing up and was saved by the bridesmaid. I've thought about that. Is there some sort of communication that you're supposed to have with the bridesmaid beforehand where they get a cue or a signal of, Play me off, Johnny, or something to let let them know, hey, a, a little a little ad-libbed line here would be great, or am I over-preparing that too? No, that actually makes a lot of sense, and I, when I read that comment, I actually thought about that. It's like, dang, it would be great to have like a little code word. It's like, yo, if I just start randomly talking about asparagus, bro, you got to just queue up that flow rider and get me out of there. <laughs> Any sort of produce item, that's your cue. You're going to know. <laughs> Matthew Sadro says, Maybe movies have ruined it for me, but I'm in the minority that best man speeches are very cringe most of the time. I'm not having it at my wedding this wow. week. I just find it very uncomfortable that my best friend or sibling is going to stand up in front of everyone and try to do the whole heartfelt speech slash stand-up thing. I haven't heard that. So I've, I've, I have a couple thoughts on this. One is that it's your wedding day. Feel comfortable. Above all else, feel comfortable. Don't feel like you have to do something just because, oh, this is tradition or that's tradition. Do what makes you comfortable. If you don't want to have that five minutes of awkwardness where you're feeling like, oh, I hope he doesn't say this, I hope he doesn't say that, 
then just don't. And that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Make sure that you have the day that you envision. And if that's something that stresses you out in the slightest, by all means, get rid of that. I think that people who approach this with a stand-up view, as he said, the whole heartfelt speech slash stand-up thing. And I don't know if he's mentioned, he might not be mentioning like stand-up comedy or something like that. But some people think that they can just do that so effortlessly. And until they actually get up there, they realize that they can't. My my wife, um, she went to a wedding probably like, oh gosh, this would have been like eight or nine years ago. And she had she had two of her exes there. She's only dated like three guys and two of her exes were there, ironically enough. And they kind of hit it off. That's a whole weird story for another time. Um, but one of her exes was giving the best man speech. And he thought he could wing it. And from all reports, he did not wing it very well. And it was awkward. And you could tell he had nothing prepared. And he thought he was just going to step up to the mic and crush it. And four minutes of awkward. Um, uh, and, and that one time, and, and it was bad. It was cringe. And it's the exact thing that he described. And if you worry that your best man is not built for that, then I have no problem wiping that off. My, my buddy Bronson, who got married, uh, what, that would have been November 2019. His best man is our other like core group of friends, Ben DeLeon. Shout out to Ben. I know he's listening. Ben was giving that speech, and all of us were kind of thinking to ourselves, Ben's not really wired this way. Ben is not the guy who's going to get up there and give the heartfelt speech. He's just not. That's not in his repertoire. He communicates in a different sort of way. He's a little, he's definitely an introvert and getting up in front of a big group of people. If I were Bronson, I would have been like, what is, what is Ben about to say? But Ben did really well. And Ben did really well because he prepared. He didn't just say, I'm going to be totally fine. I'm going to have a couple of talking points and then I'll just go from there. You could tell Ben put the time in and all of us came away very, very impressed. So I think you got to do what you're comfortable with. Just remember that it's your day and don't let somebody make you feel uncomfortable on your day just because it's tradition. As you were talking, I was thinking, I have like basically co-best friends. One of them is an amazing public speaker and the other one is a terrible one. And I might just go with that one <laughs> because yeah. I feel like when right I get here. married, it's going to be very entertaining for me to see my homie who just doesn't display emotion give a speech. Oh. <laughs> I think. That's, that's a total zag. Okay, that's... That's different. If you're wanting to take that experience on and if it's not cringe for you, I mean, then by all means, fire away. It's your day. Do what you want. <laughs> Michael Dark says, following this because I'm giving one in August. All right, Michael, we've got some good tips for you. Stay tuned here. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to butcher your pronunciation. Let's, let's just say Aaron. I got Aaron. He says, so I let off my best man speech with, how about that right end? I guess that's why they call it Sin City. Wedding was in Hilton Head, and there was there were plenty of older folks that didn't understand the reference, so that didn't go well. Aaron was just trying to drop a little hangover line. I thought about having that same exact line to start off, and then I had the realization that he had to come to grips with of, hmm, if this is less than a 25% success rate, if my pass rush success rate is less than Adam Anderson's, no. Um, <laughs> then we're probably not going to be hitting on this because you can't always try and force humor in these things. And that's the more that I've kind of read and the more that I've listened to these, the more I appreciate the person who's subtly funny 
and not trying to set you up or they're under the impression that they're gonna have some big laugh because then you can tell when they don't get that big laugh, it makes them feel awkward. So you shouldn't put yourself in those spots. Leading off with something like that, it might do more to expedite the nerves than to get rid of them. Although it's a great line. No problem with that, Aaron. No problem with that. Yeah, I think like, like Nick balancing Ruark. like older folks and like your buddies is like very important because you can't, obviously you can't give like a state of the union speech. Like you can't just be like, my friend is a great man. He's going to great places in life. He's a great, he's a great lover. He's a great fighter. You can't do, you gotta have yeah, some. you got to have a little like nod while not making like, you know, the family of the, the other party be like, who are these DJs <laughs> that you're friends with? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> So I told, I told Ryan beforehand, um, I said, is, is there anything that you just don't want me to touch? And he gave me, you know, like one thing. And I didn't have that in, in the speech or anything like that. I said, but don't worry. Like I have, I have two or three jabs in there that, that are playful and they're fun and they're not, they're not embarrassing. And you know, I, you would have no problem revealing that. Whereas like my, Lauren's sister delivered this detail that I can't share on these airwaves, but delivered probably the most embarrassing detail from their childhood and Lauren was mortified, like absolutely mortified. It was funny and it got a laugh and there's this picture of us at our wedding where I'm crying laughing because I had heard the story before but it, it, it ended up getting more laughs than one would have expected for such an inside joke because it was that funny but sometimes you can do that at the expense of you know the person of honor that day. Nick Ruark says, currently writing mine out for my brother's wedding. I am not sure what I'm going to say, but I'm spraying, I do, I think he meant to say praying instead of spraying. Don't spray at your, at your brother's wedding, don't do that. Um, I, I am praying I do not stutter or let my voice crack during the speech. I'm very nervous speaking in front of large crowds. Do the McConaughey exercise. I'm not gonna do it into the mic because yeah, you know, it's it's pumping, mm. it's it's pretty much just hitting your chest and getting a little, uh, getting one of those going. If that doesn't work for you, if that instead does the opposite and it gets your adrenaline pumping, three deep breaths. If ever I am stressed out or there is a moment that I think to myself, how am I going to get through this? Three deep breaths. Simple, effective, works Bro, every when time. you step up to the mic, you can be like, coming down. <laughs> hey everybody good to see you <laughs> little peel behind the onion uh that is how we start off every single podcast coming down in three yeah. um that's a good idea i should definitely do that i would totally just snap right into that zone good advice well see, if he had a pff grade i'll tell you right now it'd be in the high 90s <laughs> You know, his yards after contact, you know, let me tell you about Ryan and the way that he just kind of muscled through early on. Uh, no. Drew Page. Drew says, was never a best man, but the night before my wedding, this is, this is bad. Uh, for those with maybe kids in the car, ah, you know what, this isn't that bad. Let the kids know about this. Let oh, no. <laughs> Drew says, was never a best man, but the night before my wedding, I took too many shots at my rehearsal dinner and threw up in front of my parents while shooting tequila. I have questions on that. The next day, the next day, I woke up with food poisoning, day of the wedding, and was throwing up all the alcohol I had the night before, which, as Drew says, was enough to kill a horse. I threw up for a good solid eight hours and then went to get married while barely hanging on. There's 
boot and rally stories, and then there's that. My friend, for this, this doesn't have anything to do with best man speeches or anything like that. The rehearsal dinner is a very great test of your wedding endurance. So many people get to the get to the rehearsal dinner and maybe you just got in town a couple hours earlier or something like that and you get after it. And then, then, then the next day the wedding is rough. And I want the wedding to always be the peak of the weekend. You know, let, let, the, let the day after, let that, that, that day after brunch be the, the rough point. I don't want the wedding to be rough because you're in a suit and you know, you gotta be in front of people and stuff like that. If you gotta be in rough shape, be rough shape at, at a brunch where at least you're putting food into your system and you're not necessarily having to dress up and there's a little bit of this expectation that everybody's going to be on that level. But don't be on that level, much less if you're getting married, don't be on that level on the day of the wedding. Take, take, dial it back to the rehearsal dinner. Like the rehearsal dinner, we went, th there was a, a crowd at our wedding that truly got after it. I mean, they, they showed up to Bloomington. They were ready to roll. And some of them were hurting the next day. But one of the, the smartest things we did that weekend was like, we're, we're turning in at 9.30. And it helped because then the night of our wedding, you know, we got after it. And it was, you know, we were out till two in the morning, whatever it was. And we, we peaked at the right time. And there were others who, who didn't. So... Drew, a cautionary tale to say the least. I feel like, and obviously I'm not married, but I feel like that has to be a great feeling, knowing that you pulled off your wedding and it, nothing disastrous happened and then getting after it and being like, okay, like obviously it's a great day, but it's the like, at, you know, we're done. Like, if this was awesome, this is everything we hoped it would be, let's get hammered. <laughs> That's another thing about this. So the alcohol level pre-best man speech, um, was like just the, like the Luke Holmes says, like, had a few beers, but I still nailed that speech um, at best friend's wedding, whatever the line is. Um, the alcohol level that one should have, again, it, it varies person by person. I'm not getting after it before the speech, but I'm gonna find, two beer Connor is gonna find that right groove. I'm gonna find that right groove, just enough to be able to kind of loosen up a little bit. You know, it's the same amount that gets you on the dance floor. It's the same amount that gets you in those situations talking in public. Two beer Connor before the speech, after the speech, we're getting after it. We're getting after it. It's gonna be a good time. But once that stress leaves, and like you said, once when you get married and you realize that everything's in place, everybody has, has had a good time, you know, the vendors are all taken care of, they're paid for, everybody showed up that, that was supposed to show up, everything went off without incident. That post-wedding celebration party, not 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 the reception, I'm talking like going out to the bars afterwards. Right can be a great, great time and a great time to be able to kind of, you know, release some of that stress that's been building up for probably months to that point. Definitely recommend that. Jeff Jensen, he says, when I gave my speech for my best bud back in 2018, it was on my iPhone in bullet points, more of a keyword thing to start off stories about how we met, fun times and such. I had maybe two beers before. All right, Jeff, following the same, we're on the same page here because I knew if I drank more, I'd go off on tangents and that wasn't the time for that. Also, limit the inside jokes. It may be funny for you guys, but unless you were there, everyone else is awkward laughing or not laughing at all. Two great pieces of advice. Different strategy that I have in terms of the speech. I've got mine like all typed out, ready to go. Of course, how else would I do it? Um, but I like Jeff's advice about making sure that the inside jokes are, you, you can have them in there, a couple, but limit the expectations and don't let that be your big belly laugh moment of, of the entire speech. 
we need to, okay, so I want to do Austin Foster's and then end on Emery's because em Emery's is oh, a We got Emery wedding oh, story. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not his wedding, but a wedding he was at. So first, Austin Foster, he said, never had one, but me and my best friend ran a bet that if he ended up getting married before me, he'd embarrass me at my wedding by doing the best man speech in a bright pink dress. Fortunately, I'm getting married in October and he's nowhere near ready to propose to his girl. I've never done a wedding bet or anything like that or one of those like wedding guarantees where, oh, if we're still single by age 35, let's make sure we get married. Not a realistic thing. Although my best friend's wedding, great movie. Julia Roberts, she's a homewrecker, but go, go watch that movie. Great, great movie. I've watched that twice in the last six months. I'm embarrassed to say that, whatever. Um, it's Pete Cameron Diaz as well, for anybody interested. A lot of good shots of old Comiskey Park in there that I'm digging. It's also a Chicago movie. I'm biased against Chicago movies. Oh, or biased in favor. This Chicago is why movies. we can't have that third anyway. beer right here. <laughs> this is why we can't have the third beer. We get sidetracked. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Well, um, yeah, if you've never if you've never done one before and you're already putting bets in place, that's playing with fire, my friend. Austin, you are more dangerous than I am. Um, good to see that nobody's going to have to be wearing a bright pink dress. Hopefully not. Let's end with this one from memory. Gosh, this is so bad. This is, this is so bad. My brother-in-law refused to name a best man until his officiant forced him to do so during his rehearsal dinner. So I, this is Emery speaking, was named best man the night before the wedding, like 12 hours. I went from no responsibility to a ton of it instantly. The couple didn't know if they wanted us to do speeches, so they said not to write one. The next morning, day of the wedding, I decided to write one anyways. Once we got to the reception, the bride decided she wanted speeches. The maid of honor never wrote one, so I went first. She then copied my speech and changed a few words. Moral of the story, be prepared, even if they say they don't want speeches. And for the sake of the bride and groom, be decisive. I would wake up in a cold sweat thinking about that scenario playing out because having to write a speech at the last minute, that's tough. That's not the worst part about this necessarily because sometimes you can actually get some really good heartfelt stuff in there, but it's the expectation to change and having that moment of panic. I bet if like when Emery wrote some things out, it probably was really good, but I guarantee you that night of sleep was awful. Oh yeah, so he added an additional comment. He said, uh, they also asked me to help get stuff ready after the rehearsal dinner and before the wedding. So I got to sleep around 2.30 and then had to get up at five. These people, are this, Emery, are you still friends with these people? That, mm, uh, I don't know, man. Ugh. That, that's the part to me that would just be so stressful is, is knowing that that night of sleep is going to suck. You're going to be super panicked and all of a sudden you have way more stress than you ever should have going into that. Well, if you get married, be decisive, be decisive. Listen, that to is tough, man. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> yeah, you, every gets the friend of the year award for that one, man. Cause that's, I, I, my Seriously. friend would slap me, bro. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, Hey, on the plus side, I mean, if you're like me and you're not a huge planner, I would just get up there and roast them. I'd be like, oh yeah, well, this piece is probably terrible because I had five hours to write it. So uh, let's tell some stories. <laughs> Funny story about, you know, 
groom X. He's so prepared and with it that he gave me a whole 12 hours to write this speech. So if this doesn't sound very prepared, it's because it's not. That's actually, Let's raise our that's glasses actually, no, think about it, you can't lose. If you just say, hey, I had no time, this might stink, all right, here goes, then it's like, you know, you're fine. That, that joke gets an awkward laugh, and then it's like, no, no really, seriously, that, this that isn't a joke, don't, please clap. <laughs> then expectations are lowered. You know what? This isn't the worst strategy to come up with. I might have to lower some expectations from, from the top and just like, I'll throw my brother under the, no, I'm kidding. I, and for the record, that's, that's another thing. My brother never asked me to do a speech or anything like that. And I don't think I ever asked him, but it was just kind of assumed. If you're in a situation like, you know, Matthew Sager brought up where he didn't want that. He doesn't want that at his wedding. You got to communicate here or there, if you're gonna have a strong take about that, give it at least two months. Give it at least two months. I wrote the, I wrote my speech probably like two to three weeks before the wedding, but it had been in my head pretty much the entire time. And that's a little bit different considering what I do for a living and writing thousands of words a day for a website, a little bit different. But I, I think that just be prepared, be, be decisive and try and enjoy it as much as possible. I hope this weekend goes well. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm excited, but I'll have probably a story or two from the wedding in Lexington. Um, gonna see, I think I'm gonna see a dear friend at Kentucky. That's the plan for this weekend as well. Um, might have some details on that later on. Um, unrelated to that, we will have a first time guest on next week that I've been wanting to have on for a while. Was glad that we were able to make that happen. If you have not, leave us a five star review, like, subscribe uh, to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, join the Facebook group and you're going to hear your name right on air and figuring it out. One last thing that I wanted to be able to close with. One last thing here. So sometimes, you know, people will reach out and they'll say, hey, you know, we've got, um, we, we've got people who are dealing with, with health issues. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to, to read this for, for Drew Page. Drew has um, a, a friend who is, who is not doing well. Um, one of his wife's friends recently di got diagnosed with, with cancer. They started a Venmo donation fund um, to be able to, to help her as a, you know, to be able to get some money to be able to help cover some of those costs. So uh, I wanted to give that um, a shout out. Uh, it is up to bat with cat. And there's the Venmo there. I'm gonna share the link in the Facebook group. Um, we can tweet that out. Um, and please, if you have the means to be able to, um, to join, uh, to, to help cat fight the battle, Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, please, please do so uh, if you have the means. We really, really appreciate all the help in the world on that. Hope that she is doing well. So until next week, thanks guys. Talk soon.